Hello and welcome to the Global Migration Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Migration Studies at UBC. My name is Gabrielle Dumpies-Wolliver, and I'm your host for Season 3. The Migration Center is located in the unceded ancestral home of the Musqueam people. As we think about migration and mobility in this podcast, we remember that Musqueam people have dwelled here for millennia, and that this place is rightfully theirs. Today we'll be listening to a story about a man named Samir. It's another in our limited series about temporary foreign workers during COVID. The series comes from a research collaboration between UBC geographers and the Migrant Workers Center here in Vancouver. When we met Samir in 2020, he was looking for a job. He had lots of medical training and experience, and he desperately wanted to join the ranks of so-called essential workers. But as you'll hear, the government's work permit policies kept him out of legal employment for months. They also left lots of room for people to try and take advantage of him in the meantime. Here's Samir's story. But I love, like, you know, the Latin music, like, uh, especially Birengue, Pachada, <laughs> like, you know, Salsa. I love salsa, so I put salsa music sometimes. Do you salsa dance too? Uh, kind of, yeah. I know some steps and things. You can hear it in his voice, how happy Samir sounds when he talks about music. He was first introduced to Latin music when he was in California, where he went to do some training in Chinese medicine. At that point, he already had a good deal of medical training. So I finished my Bachelor of Science in Nursing in 2012. And then I got a job in the nursing home. Like, you know, uh, I had my the homeopathic medicine bachelor. I had my own clinic for like a couple of years, five, six years. And this, and I was working with my father. He was a Ayurveda practitioner, like alternative medicine. I, I grew up in the healthcare, like kind of uh, thing, so. You meet Samir and you sense the ways he's always trying to expand his knowledge. It's like he loves the training, but he really wants to take care of people. He keeps figuring out other sets of skills that can help them in these beautiful, integrated ways. Like later on, besides the nursing and the Ayurvedic medicine, he'll also become certified as a yoga instructor. Take all this training and experience and you have someone who will eventually start his own facility in BC's Fraser Health District. And it's a pretty amazing place. Uh, my own kind of uh, daycare center, like the elderly daycare center, like, you know, I would like to integrate, like, you know, uh, I'm doing some research and doing my yoga practice with that, like, you know, if the older people come to my place, like, you know, how to rejuvenate there, like, you know, I would like to integrate with, the, I would like to give them the meal, like, you know, the whole day package, like, you know, from eight hours, then flat hundred dollar, I can sell meal, I can sell yoga. That could be the way this all comes together, but it hasn't, not yet anyways. Right now, Samir is unemployed. I've been waiting for like six, seven, eight months. Instead of I have all qualities, like, you know, and then since the COVID happened, I feel so unfortunate myself because being a healthcare worker, I would like to serve the community. I would like to give the people what I have, but I cannot because of the system. 
Samir isn't unemployed for lack of training or for lack of interest from employers. When we first meet him in October 2020, he tells us he's getting calls every day from long-term care facilities that want to hire him. But these aren't jobs he can take if he wants to keep working toward permanent residency. The offer he needs has to be from a private employer, a family that will hire him in compliance with the caregiver program. Of all the recruitment and education that Samir has had, from private practice in Gujarat, India, to St. Thomas, Virgin Islands, to Puerto Rico, to Texas, to California, to British Columbia, caregiving is what brought him to Surrey. But only by accident, really. Not because he knew about Canada's caregiver program, but because his first experience with trying to get safe legal employment in Canada was so bad. So I came here in Victoria. I did my yoga teacher training, like, you know, in Victoria. So after three, four months, and then my wife said, oh, it's a beautiful country. Like, my kids love here. Like, you know, they went to the school. And my wife was surprised when she see the first time the lady was driving the bus. And she said, how it could possible, like, you know, <laughs> that the girls is driving a big bus. And then, can we stay here? Like, you know, I said, the lawyer back in Victoria, they said, yeah, you can, like, you have a, a quite good, like, kind of background and thing. If somebody would hire you, that would be great, like, you know. So I did, like, you know, applying, like, here and there. But I couldn't, like, you know, find a job. And then I come in contact with the, one of the immigration consultant. And they say, oh, yeah, I have, like, you know, I can get you the job and this and that. I didn't know at that time, like, what the process was like, you know. Let me tell you, this consultant thing, I was thinking they're the lawyer. But then I found out they're the six-month online training and they're consultant. They think they're a lawyer and then people don't know, you know. They're just good for the fill of the forms and things. They cannot give legal advice. Uh, he said, uh, I will charge you like, you know, the $10,000 up front you have to pay. And I talked to my wife like, hey, like, you know, he's saying that kind of money. Then he was showing me like, you know, big star, like, you know, once you get the work permit, your wife going to have open work permits, you're going to work like this and this, this, this. He saw me like, you know, the nice, beautiful dream, and then I end up paying him like $10,000. You hear this story, and you know it's bad. Samir's paid him, and six months go by, and the consultant never processes a work permit for him. What's worse, though, is that this is so commonplace. Samir tells us about other people he knows who have gone through this. And for the record, the government knows it's bad, too. In May 2021, they released a new code of conduct for the immigration consultant industry in light of known abuses. But some people are skeptical that more rules for self-regulation will make much of a difference. Samir eventually gets a work permit by applying for one at the Canadian border. But this doesn't do anything to help with the employer the consultant had already set him up with. And he asked me, like, uh, my background. I said, yeah, I have the nursing background, a medical background, like, you know. So he said, my father needs somebody like, you know, to work for him. Would you work? I said, yeah, I would work like, you know. So he come pick me up from my house. He took me to his house and then he said, this is my father. He has a dementia. He's a hundred year old gentleman. So I was working with him all night, like from 7 p.m. to the next day 11. Like his father, he wake up every hour like, you know, he need the food because he has a dementia. And if you don't pay attention to him, he might end up peeing in the bathroom, uh, peeing in the kitchen, peeing in the bedroom, anything. So I have to every time, I have to focus on him, like, and make sure he's going to the right place. Sometimes he get out from the house, sometimes he break the locks. They used to lock the, the kitchen doors and things because 
if you don't find the food. So. Meanwhile, Samir finds out from the Migrant Workers Center about Canada's caregiver program. And surprisingly, his employer agrees to deal with the extra government procedures required for it. So Samir gets a new work permit this way. But nothing really changes with the conditions of his job. In fact, they get worse. Not the part where he's making sure an elderly man with dementia doesn't pee where he shouldn't. That's the work he's agreed to do. But there's everything else the employer makes him do. He, he was paying me, the employer paying me like uh, 1500 flat, like, you know. That's $1,500 a month. But he making me work like all nights. And then the, someday he calling me to his store, like, you know, to work in his store. And no day off, nothing, like, you know. He has a big house, like 15 bedroom. So he make me to clean, like, on the top, like, you know, I was working all night. The next day I have to go to his shops and loading and unloading the things, yeah. so. So how many hours were you working during Almost 16 hours, 17 hours, 18 oh. hours, sometime. I was in my kids' says, Dad, why, when are you going to sleep with us? Like, you know, just give us one night. Like, the one day he brought the one lady, and he said, is she going to stay with my dad? And you have to come to my store. So he changed my work from his father to his store because the work permit was under his name. So he's the one, he make a decision for my life. Like, you know, what should I do? And controlling everything, like, you know. And he sent me to the Elder Grove, to the Langley, to the YVR airport with the truck, big truck loading things yeah. and unloading there. I said, hey, like, you know, I don't have insurance, like, you know, and if something happened, like, you know, who gonna be responsible for that? He said, no, this is the man job. What job you've been doing was a girly job, like, you know. I said, now this is the macho man job, like, you know, I will teach you, like, you know. I said, hey, like, you know, I don't need to learn this thing, like, you know, I know how to drive and thing, but not with the full loader, like, things. Yeah. So he said, if you can do it, just leave the job. He gave me one day, like, the instruction, find another job. Samir didn't leave that day because he didn't have anywhere else to go. But he did file a legal complaint against his employer. And that ended up with him running for his life out of the shop when the employer found out about it. He also ended up with a successful legal settlement against the employer. Also, like the settlement, I get some money from the Migrant Worker Center. They did, like, you know, arrange me $14,000, $15,000. Yeah. But other hand I get the money but I had to pay back to the lawyer I have hired like you know so Samir also spent the next year not being able to legally work how long do you think seven thousand dollars can stretch for a family of four trying to make it in the lower mainland it's run out everything now I'm like you know hand them out now I have to find something if somebody called me like hey I'll pay, pay you cash like you know so risking, like, you know, the people I'm working with, risking myself, like, you know, so. Part of why Samir is still unemployed is because he's trying to stick with the immigration pathway for caregivers. He needs not just a private employer, but one who's willing to follow the protocols of the caregiver program. He's had many potential employers balk at this because it means dealing with government compliance and paying for a labor market impact assessment, or LMIA. And that costs $1,000, plus whatever fee is a processing agent might be charging. 
But let's say Samir finds a willing employer after a couple of months of searching. It'll take two or three more months before a positive LMIA comes through, and then another three or four or maybe six months for the work permit to be approved. Or maybe longer. And remember, you typically can't work until this whole process has been completed. And if something happens, like, say, your elderly potential employer dies while you're waiting for your permit, or you decide you want to change jobs, you have to start all over. Or maybe your employer threatens you and tells you never to come back to work because you filed a complaint against him. Same thing. You start over. So why would you do that? Why would you do anything to risk your employment if these are the terms? Why wouldn't you tolerate almost anything and think that you had no other choice? And why wouldn't an employer or an immigration consultant or others find ways to take advantage of you? Canada's migrant worker programs might be expansive and well-regarded by some, but the reality is they expose people to a lot of ugliness. The caregiving hiring process does take a long time, but the thing is, Samir shouldn't have had to start all over. The main reason he did is because he had what's called an employer-specific work permit, which meant he could only work for that one certain employer. Remember, he mentioned this earlier. The work permit was under his name, so he's the one. He make a decision for my life, like, you know, what should I do, and controlling everything, like, you know. If he'd had an occupational-specific open work permit instead, he could have applied for other jobs right away, without having to wait. And chances are, he wouldn't have faced exploitation in the first place, since that employer would have known that Samir had the freedom to take another job. No more leverage for the employer. But until recently, these open work permits have been harder to come by. He even applied for one that Canada makes available specifically for vulnerable workers who are being abused the way he was. But for whatever reason, they didn't grant it to him. So now it's been 15 months, and he's still waiting. How much more protection and stability could the system offer if open work permits were the norm? Or if all so-called essential workers already in Canada were granted permanent status? It's called the methi, like, you know, it's the main ingredient is the fenugreek. The, we call in our language is methi. It's not considered as a sweet, sweet, sweet. It's not considered as a, like, you know, it's in between bittersweet, like, you know. I asked Samir how he and his family spend their time these days, especially with so much time at home. Me and my wife, like, you know, we spend time, especially we are making some cooking something, like, you know, do on Instagram or do see some recipes and things. Mostly we are like, you know, spend some time talking, talking, talking. Who decides uh, which recipe that you're going to make? My wife. This recipe is especially from Gujarat, like, you know, from my home place. Like, you know, you put like the watermelon seeds, chickpea flour, yeah. We roast it in the uh, clarified butters, uh, the wheat flour and then we mix it in a ball all together and put the jaggery. This just to balance the bitterness, that's what they put the, the jaggery, the sugar. They, they consider it a healthy kind of thing, especially in the winter. My wife used to see my mother, that's what she come up like, okay, we're gonna make it like, you know, because the mom used to make it and we used to eat it. Since beginning, yeah, 
yeah, since beginning. Meti is full of memories for Samir, full of his mom and Gujarat, his home place. His extended family are still there now. When his father suddenly came down with COVID last August, Samir couldn't travel to be with him. His dad, the one he'd first practiced medicine with, died within two days. Samir never told him about the trouble he'd been having with his status and being out of work. They were all hoping his dad could eventually join them here in Canada. When you message Samir on WhatsApp, it's his dad's picture that comes up on the profile, not his. Can you just tell me more about the heater situation or in your house? You said it went out last week and the, the landlord can't repair it or? I don't know. Like I get the text from my landlord. Say, oh, the, the heater is like, you know, not working. So we'll fix it tomorrow. But it's been like, you know, last week and it hasn't done yet. So. Samir and his family live in the basement unit beneath their landlord. It's late November when he tells me this story. He says they put on three layers to sleep at night, as long as the heater stays unrepaired. Do they, are they usually kind of negligent like this and don't follow up on things quickly, or is this unusual? It's, uh, I could say it's usual. We don't like, you know, we don't want to bother, like, they're supposed to do their part and things. I don't want, like, you know, uh, tell them like, hey, like you know, that's their responsibility, their duty, and they should like you know. What are you afraid will happen if you texted her more, or if you were sort of telling them this is your responsibility? I, build, I I condemn myself because this is my situation. I'm here. I'm like, you know, kind of feelings I have. It's my fault. And because I'm, I'm not willing to tell them, like, you know, hey, like, you know, this thing has to be done. It's tricky enough to handle things with a landlord who doesn't take care of maintenance. But there's actually something more going on here. Samir tells me he had recently had to ask the landlord for a letter supporting his work permit application, confirming he had a place to live. I asked her, and uh, she just write me the two, three line and send me the email. I said, should you give me your contact information and the signature? And she, like, refused. She said, I don't give my phone number to anybody, and so... She refuses to give her phone number. If the landlord won't comply with the letter requirements, it might impact Samir's application. It turns out the person in control of your housing can delay your work permit, too. Um, you said something about feeling like it's your fault about the heater and all that and drawing attention to it. And I, it's definitely not your fault that your heater's broken. And that doesn't change that you should be able to have landlords who fulfill who take responsibility and fulfill their obligations it's not your fault that's true that's true yeah for a while it seemed like finding a new employer might not be so hard 
Samir would respond to ads for people looking for caregivers, no immigration consultants this time. But instead, he found another way that workers were being exposed to extortion. I have like, I have BC Carol registry number. I have everything like, you know, but the employer I'm getting call, they're asking for money. Take this man in Surrey. He's, he's a big name here, let me tell you. You know, I went to his house. He called me like, okay, yeah, okay. So I went to his house. He said, yeah, you need a paper, right? I said, yes, I need like, you know, so. Then he take me to the lawyer, the family lawyer. Oh yeah, we can do this thing. So then he end up, he said, people are paying now $40,000, how much you could pay? I said, sorry, man, I cannot. The, the one day I had, the, I said, I would like to move Kelowna. I get a call from Kelowna, hey, yeah, I need for my father. And then I say, yeah, I'm like, this is my basic care registry number. This is my whatever, like, you know, my experience, everything is there. And then the guy, he called me back. He said, how much you could do, like, you know? I tell him, do you need really genuine for your father or are you doing for money? He said, sorry, like, can I give you the paper and then that's it. There's no need to care my father. So just paper job. Paper job, he says. He's seen it multiple times, and he knows others who have experienced it too. People are paying. This is, let me, this is the shadow economy for Canada, let me tell you. The money is coming in in the country. Nobody like, hey, but where is it coming from? If I pay like $13,000, $40,000, right now I get the LMI and I get my work permit. Boom. One month. I don't need to wait and this and that. I've been waiting for like six, seven, eight months. If you have a money, you don't need to have a BC carrier registry number, or you don't need like, you know, they make a fake documents and everything, you know, and then they represent you like, oh yeah, he's well-educated and everything, like, you know. Instead of I have all qualities, like, you know. That's the reality for the Temporary Foreign Workers Program here, like, you know, if you think like, oh, these are beautiful things, but the backdrop, if you see, is very, very horrible, let me tell you. They are greedy, there is a corruption, there is all kinds of things going on. They know, everybody knows, but I try to come forward, to complain. I'm in this position now. COVID has only extended wait times for work permit processing. Now Samir's gotten his positive LMIA to be a caregiver for an elderly couple, and he's just waiting for his work permit. But in the meantime, COVID is both the threat and the opportunity for someone with skills like Samir's. Also, I've been getting the another call from the long-term facilities and things, and uh, they would like to hire me, and they have the open LMIA, and uh, because they are in a serious need, and this is like if you would like to, I can take you today, and then you can start working. So they would put me like in the specific like in a facility they are the COVID positive so I have to risk myself like you know the people doesn't want to willing to work with the positive patient and thing that's what this thing is existing now I believe so I said oh God like you know you should have given me this opportunity like a month ago I wouldn't have come in with this family and like you know I would have go and serve like you know and so but I, I, I don't want to go with that the company and thing because I already commit 
to this family and they're willing like doing all the process and things. So I would like to stay with this family and then working with them. Samir wants to follow through on the arrangements he's already made with the elderly couple. These other jobs would have exposed him to COVID, but they also could have provided him some desperately needed income, maybe much sooner than his intended job. He worried about exposing his family to COVID too, but then his kids might not be able to enroll in school again if Samir doesn't have pay stubs to prove he is legally employed on a legal work permit, and the kids already had to miss a year and a half of school waiting for the last job to start. What's that like for you? For me, like, you know, it's, I'm, I would like to give them, like, you know, the best thing, but uh, it's, it's kind of uh, frustrating and overwhelming for me. Uh, depression and thing, I should have, like, you know, because uh, I'm not, like, you know, working or same time I'm not like you know giving them my best so it's kind of um, that's it yeah two different times we got to ask Samir about his plans for when he has his work permit when he's less exposed to the pitfalls of the immigration system I have big dreams and everything. Like, you know, first I would like to work with the Fraser Health, and um, then my ultimate goal is to have uh, my own kind of uh, daycare center, like the elderly daycare center. Like, you know, I would like to integrate. Like, you know, uh, I'm doing some research and doing my yoga practice with that. Like, you know, if the older people come to my place, like, you know how to rejuvenate there, like, you know. I love working with all the people and things. I enjoy working with them, so. The next time I ask, he talks about basic stuff for his family. New shoes, better cooking things, mattresses, a TV. Things they don't have right now. I'm just wondering, like, if you're at home cooking or something, and if, if I was in your house, what music would I hear in the house? Oh, you yeah, different varieties of music. <laughs> it's all kind of like, you know. But I love, like, you know, the Latin music, like, uh, especially Birengue, Bachata, like, you know, salsa. I love salsa, so I put salsa music sometimes. When we talk again in a few years, Samir actually is working for Fraser Health, and his wife is taking English classes and working part time at a restaurant. They finally moved into a bigger apartment one with two bedrooms, a working heater, and new beds. His older son is finishing a certificate in environmental architecture, and the younger one is almost out of high school. Samir and his wife still cook recipes together from Instagram, and in the kitchen, they're playing salsa music because it still makes him so happy. If he can keep waiting, or the system gets better, this could all be true. Special thanks to Samir for sharing his experiences with us. Thank you to those who also made this research story possible, including Natalie Drolet, Executive Director of the Migrant Workers Center, Dr. Jerry Pratt, Professor and Head of Geography at UBC, and Dr. Vanessa Banta, PhD from UBC Geography. Thanks as well to the Center for Migration Studies and the team that supports this podcast, including Sandra Schinerl, 
Emily Ambergi, Sofia Ramos, Atia Yekta, and Center Director Dr. Antje Ellerman. We acknowledge once again the Musqueam place that supports the Center's work, and that gratitude for it is not enough. For more episodes and information, please visit us at migration.ubc.ca. Thanks for tuning in. 